Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide File. It's a murder from 1973. The longer a case goes cold, the harder it is to solve. Maybe if it was solved, if they could find out who did it, um, it would help. We're hoping that someone saw something, knows something, remembers something that might help us finally find justice for her. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast, a real-time investigative podcast looking into the 1973 unsolved homicide of Tina Davison. I'm Sean McGregor. While trying to gather evidence for this podcast and examine suspects, I started to compile a list of similar murders. One of the simplest and most plausible theories is that Tina fell victim to a serial killer. I started to write down any cases from 1963 all the way to 1983 that bore any resemblance to Tina's case. Our first case takes us two and a half hours north of Racine to Black Creek, Wisconsin. On December 18, 1963, around 2.30 p.m., Marvin Kills Donk had returned home from his job at the Menasha Dairy. He lived in the tiny rural town of Black Creek with his wife, Florence, and their two-month-old son, Jeffrey. The couple had been married for eight years and were looking forward to celebrating their first Christmas with their new son. Unfortunately, that joy would never be experienced. 28-year-old Florence was found stabbed to death in the kitchen of her Black Creek home. She was laying in a pool of blood next to her two-month-old son, who luckily was unharmed. Florence was described as quiet and reserved, not a person to frequently engage in idle conversation. Her friends described her as trusting, happy-go-lucky. From what I read, police never arrested any suspects. The last article I could find was from 2005. Her husband, who is 71 now, was confident that new technology, especially DNA testing, would help solve the crime. Comparing this case to Tina's, there are some things that stand out to me as similar. Both women were found stabbed to death, and both were described as quiet and sweet. But that's also where the similarities end. Florence was found in her own home, while Tina was found miles away on a deserted beach. Tina was found nude and stabbed 61 times, while Florence was only stabbed 9 times, and her 2-month-old son was left unharmed. This murder also took place 10 years before Tina's, and over 170 miles away. It is possible that if this is connected to Tina... This could have been the serial killer's first victim. Serial killers often start with an accidental killing or an experimental killing. And regarding the distances between Black Creek and Racine, well, serial killers are like normal people in some ways. For example, sometimes they have to move, perhaps a new job opportunity, or after the killing, the murderer got scared 
and skip town and move south. The next three victims are all closer to Racine. They happen in Milwaukee, which is Racine's neighbor to the north. 34-year-old Diane Troyer lived in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Oak Creek is a small suburb in between Milwaukee and Racine. I've lived there. It's a nice town. Diane was driving to work on the morning of September 1st, 1966, when another motorist, driving a gray 1956 Chevy, was able to somehow get her to pull over. Emerging from his car, the man started to slash at her with a knife, but suddenly fled when she started to scream. She would survive her wounds, but other victims proved less fortunate. On September 3rd, 10-year-old Julia Beckwith was raped, beaten, and stabbed to death in a vacant lot in Milwaukee. Six weeks later, 18-year-old Cheryl Thompson was found by her brother behind a Catholic church, partially nude, and stabbed 22 times. The scene was even more horrific on November 4th, when 19-year-old Diane Olkwitz was slain stabbed more than 100 times at the factory where she worked in Menominee Falls, a town on the northwest side of Milwaukee. A week later, 11-year-old Kathleen Dreyer was accosted by a man who slashed her with a knife and left her bleeding on the street. He escaped in a 1957 Chevrolet. A neighborhood boy spotted the car at a nearby gas station and quickly called the police. Police apprehended the driver. His name? Michael Lee Harrington. Harrington was born in 1943. He was the son of a Kansas City policeman. He was regularly beaten by his mother with a belt until age 12 when he, quote, got tired of it and took it away from her. By age 23, he was working in Milwaukee as a tool and die maker. He was married and they were expecting their first child. His car was a jet black 1957 Chevy, and it was his pride and joy. But it also turned out to be his downfall. He had internal pressures mounting towards him to the point of, quote, an explosion of all this anger that I built up over the years. A search of his vehicle turned up drugs, in a stockpile of surgical instruments. In custody, Harrington confessed to the Beckwith and Thompson murders, along with the stabbing of Kathleen Dreyer. He was convicted on July 7, 1967. It only took the jury 35 minutes of deliberation. Harrington was sentenced to consecutive life terms for the two murders, with an additional 30 years tacked on for the attempted murder. Examining this case, Michael Harrington would be a prime suspect of Tina's murder. His M.O. fits perfectly. Rage, violence, multiple stabbings, some of the victims found partially nude. Except one thing. Harrington was arrested, and he was sentenced to three life terms with an additional 30 years. So, that excludes Harrington as a suspect. February 9th, 1967, Mary Ellen Kaldenberg, 
a young 17-year-old girl, was walking a short distance home from the store in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kenosha is Racine's neighbor directly south. She was walking quickly as she was supposed to meet her boyfriend for a date. That date would never happen. On February 11th, around 2 p.m., two 10-year-old boys were playing around a junked vehicle on city property near the water service building at 36th Avenue and 67th Street. The following Monday, February 13th, the day before Valentine's Day, she was found in the trunk of the same abandoned hearse that the boys had been playing on on Saturday. She had been stabbed 12 times in the neck, abdomen, back, and head. The two boys were questioned and insisted that there was nobody there because they would have seen it. Mary's body had snow on it. The only snowfall reported was Sunday night. There's also no weapon found and no real evidence. Police don't know how Mary entered the fence in the lot, but they believe that the murder happened somewhere else. Early on the morning of Tuesday, February 14th, police assigned to guard the crime scene spotted a man approaching the rear of the fenced-in lot. When they went to investigate, he fled. His car was described as a Chrysler, maroon and white in color. Police believed that the man could have just been curious, or perhaps an attention seeker. Either way, they were unable to catch him. This case really reminds me a lot of Tina's case. Both were young girls. Mary was two years older than Tina. The lot in Kenosha is pretty close to the beach where Tina was found. Only about 12 miles or a 25-minute car ride. Both were stabbed, but Mary's stab wounds showed much more of a struggle. With the stabbing taking place in her back, abdomen, neck, and head, it showed that she could have fought back, perhaps trying to flee after initial stab wounds through the abdomens. If this was the same killer as Tina, perhaps he learned a lesson from this kill. A little over five years later, Tina would be found murdered, but she would be struck in the head first. An incapacitated victim puts up less of a struggle. To this day, Mary's case remains unsolved. July 1969 17-year-old Stephanie Kasberg's dismembered body was found in northern Racine County. The Milwaukee Police Department's website stated that she was last seen leaving work, but the Milwaukee Journal states her 11-year-old brother last saw her getting ready for work at 5.30 p.m. on Monday, July 6, and she was last seen by a witness getting into a yellow convertible in front of her house. She never made it to work for her 6.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. shift. She was a waitress at Merck's Big Boys in Juneau Village on Milwaukee's east side. Because of the discrepancy between the police account and the newspaper account of where Stephanie was last seen, you know, her work or her house, one can only wonder. It's unknown whether the police checked out the restaurant to see if it was the kill site. Some of the body parts were found several days later off a county line road in Franklin, Wisconsin, a quarter mile west of I-94, on the east bank of the Root River, right below a steel trestle. 
the first body part, the right leg, was found wrapped in newspapers by a 10-year-old boy fishing with his father. When searchers combed the area, they found the head in a brown paper bag and both arms wrapped in newspapers and thick brush right below the trestle. A brown shoe and an army jacket were found nearby. The torso and left leg were never found. A triangular bronze-colored earring with a small oval blue stone was still in her left ear. The other one was missing. Searchers later found her purse and a pink blanket five miles north, a short distance from Root River, in the 7,000 block of South 68th Street in Franklin. A torn-up photocopy of her picture was found off another street in Franklin. On July 16, 1969, during a continuing search for evidence, a 34-year-old man identified as Grant Hughes was found in his running vehicle, which was parked in thick brush approximately three-quarters of a mile southwest of the dump site. A hose was attached to his exhaust and stuck in a cracked window. It appeared he had taken his own life. Two notes were found inside his car. Police, however, cleared him of any involvement in the murder. Some speculated that the killer was a butcher because of the way the body was cut up. The cause of death was never revealed by police or newspapers, to my knowledge, either because the torso was never found or they just chose not to release that evidence. In the July 15, 1969 edition of the Milwaukee Journal, it states that more body parts were found in the area where the first body parts were discovered. Yet later news articles after that date never follow up on the July 15th article or confirm what those body parts were or whether they were actually found. It is possible that the police decided to not release any more information on what those body parts were. This murder is similar to Mary and Tina's as they both involved young girls, and both happened very close to where Tina was found. But the disposal of this body is way more graphic than either Mary or Tina's. Instead of just dumping a nude body on a beach or in a hearse in a junkyard, this killer spread pieces out over a few miles. It happened two years after Mary's death. If it was the same killer... Perhaps he had more time to play with his kill this time. Mary was killed in February, which was cold and snowy. But Stephanie was killed in July. You can do a lot more outdoors during the warm weather month as opposed to winter. If this was the same killer, maybe Tina and Mary were just quick kills to help satisfy his thirst for blood, whereas Stephanie was an ultimate kill. Wednesday, June 23rd, 1971. We go back to northwestern Milwaukee. Around 5 p.m., 15-year-old Terry Erdman left her house to head to her job babysitting. Usually she left a note letting her parents know where she was going, but on this day, she didn't. Her family assumed that she had simply forgotten. She was described as a normal girl. She didn't dress funny or act out. She had several friends and never hung out with just one person. Her teacher said she had a record of good attendance and was never late to class. 
Her classmates described her as reserved and quiet, but with a good sense of humor. By 9.30 that night, having not heard from their daughter, her parents contacted police and filed a missing person report. Her body was not found until the following evening. An 11-year-old boy was walking with his father. They were training their dog to hunt rabbits in the dense brush north of the Western Railroad tracks, east of Appleton Avenue, and south of Little Menominee Parkway. They stumbled upon her body, laying face down in a thicket of small trees and tall grass. Her jersey sweater had been pulled up over her head, and her blue shorts and underwear had been pulled down. She was stabbed 50 times and sexually molested. By June 28th, police had a suspect, a 25-year-old male. He had worked in a store near where Terry had lived and had been charged on Saturday with indecent behavior stemming from an incident in which he made unwanted sexual advances on a female friend of Terry's. The incident had occurred the previous November. He was being held on $15,000 bond. But after an extensive police interrogation and investigation, he was cleared. His alibi on the night of the murder checked out and he's eliminated as a suspect. Once again, this case echoed Tina's case. She was the same age, stabbed just about the same amount of times, and found nude. One big difference, though, is Terry had been sexually assaulted, whereas police don't believe that Tina was. Terry's murder happened a couple years before Tina's, and was about 40 miles northwest where Tina's body was discovered. This is another unsolved case, and over 40 years later, Terry seems to be just as forgotten as Tina. June 17, 1972, 16-year-old Susan Kleist of Oak Creek had not returned home from her job waitressing at the Rafters, a bar that still exists today on 27th Street. She was a pretty, friendly, sometimes quiet girl who had just finished her junior year at Bayview High School. She was a girl that everyone said they enjoyed being around. Her body was found in an abandoned field in Oak Creek. She was stabbed in the chest and abdomen 39 times. Richard L. Greenier, a 25-year-old Milwaukee man, was eventually convicted of her murder in 1973. I had a hard time finding a lot of information about this case, but I did see something notable from his appeal in 2005. I'll read from the appeal court records. And just to warn you, this might make you as angry as it made me. Quote, Since 1973, when he was convicted of first-degree murder, Richard Greenier has been a prisoner of Wisconsin. His sentence is life imprisonment. He also has convictions for arson and burglary. Greenier wants to be released on parole, but his every request has been denied with two observations. First, that he has not been punished enough, and second, that the populace would not be safe with him at large unless he has completed treatment for his sexual disorders. It goes on to say he began a treatment program but flunked out because of misconduct. Greenier murdered a teenage hitchhiker, mutilated her body, and raped her corpse. He observes, however, 
that he has not been convicted of a sexual crime, and he maintains that labeling him a, quote, sex offender on the basis of the necrophilia and other information the state possesses about his sexual proclivities violates the due process and ex post facto clauses of the Constitution because it stigmatizes him and hampers his chance for parole release. These statements really offended me. For him to not want to be labeled as a sex offender because he, quote, only committed necrophilia is repulsive. He brutally murdered, mutilated, and raped a young girl after he killed her. As far as I know, he's still in prison. And I hope he rots there till he dies. He was arrested on suspicion of burglary at 3 in the morning on January 23rd, 1973 by Milwaukee police. On the way to the station, he volunteered information that he had committed a murder. At approximately 8 a.m., he was read his Miranda rights and began to make an oral confession to the murder of Susan Kleist. He was found guilty and convicted on November 6, 1973. Digging into the case of Susan and her killer, I was almost positive that I had found Tina's killer. Unfortunately, Tina was murdered on March 27, 1973. Richard Greener was already in police custody. So that rules out that lead. Unless somehow he was out on bail until he was convicted. I couldn't find any evidence of that though, and I find it highly unlikely. After Tina's death in 1973, the trail kind of went cold. I couldn't find any similar murders for another 10 years. May 21st, 1983, at 9.05 a.m., 23-year-old Angie Lewis was found in the rear yard of North 32nd Street in the center of Milwaukee. Angie's death was a result of injuries from being stabbed. Two months later, July 11th, 1983, Deborah Oberg was found stabbed to death in the parking lot at 310 North Harbor Drive. The night before, she was at the Summerfest grounds and afterwards went to a nearby tavern with some family members. She was last seen leaving the bar with a white male who possibly had a southern accent and may have gone by the name of Don. That was all the information I could find on those murders, and neither fits with Tina's case very well. Out of all the cases I found that were similar to Tina's, only three really stood out to me. Mary Kaldenberg, who was 17, she was stabbed to death in February of 1967 in Kenosha. Stephanie Kasberg, who was also 17, it was found completely mutilated her body left in pieces all over Racine in July of 1969. And Terry Erdman, the 15-year-old who was stabbed 50 times and sexually assaulted on the northwest side of Milwaukee in June of 1971. But what does this tell me? Well, the murders happened every two years, 67, 69, 71, and then 73. The months had something in common, too. The first and last murder happened in the very beginning of the year, February and March. The second and third murders happened directly in the middle of the year, June and July. 
The two murders that happened in the middle of the year were much more extreme and brutal than the two cold months murders, body parts being severed and sexually assaulted. The location went from Kenosha in 67, then north and west up to the Racine-Franklin border in 69, north to Milwaukee in 71, then came almost full circle, landing just a little bit north of the first murder in 1973. The victims were all very similar. Sweet, quiet, pretty, and friendly girls. The first two were the same age, 17, and the second two victims were both 15. Serial killers are often attracted to victims who are very similar. Maybe they want to kill older women who resemble their mother. They were never able to fight back against an abusive or controlling mother, so they take their rage and frustration out on women of the same age range that might look very similar. Or maybe they're attracted to beautiful, blonde, supermodel-looking women, but they themselves are too unattractive or unappealing to land such a person. So they target what they can't have, and they strike out. They make their unfulfilled sexual fantasies become reality in violent and forceful ways. But what about these four girls? Do they fit a profile? I couldn't find a lot of information, and the pictures I could find were well over 45 years old. But I worked with what I could find. I couldn't find any photos of Mary Caldenberg. Her case was the oldest that I was investigating. It was almost 50 years old. Her mother said in an interview that Mary was very self-conscious of her nose. Apparently it was a little bit larger. And that Mary wanted to get plastic surgery with the money she was earning from her job. Besides that, she was described as plain and ordinary looking. I couldn't find anything on her hair color, eye color, or anything else. If anyone listening can find a photo of it, post it on our, our Facebook group uh, or email it to me, please. Stephanie Kasberg was somewhat different than Mary. She was small and described as pretty. Some of her friends actually described her as a knockout, that all the boys dreamed they could date. She had dark, straight hair that went down past her shoulders. Terry Erdman's hair was a little bit lighter and a little more wavy. In the picture that I saw, which I'll post all the pictures of these girls um, on the website, it was also cut just a little bit above her shoulders. The photo looked like it could be a school picture, which they usually take in the beginning of the year. So it could have grown out by the time that she was murdered in June. And, of course, we all know what Tina Davison looked like. I use her photo for the podcast artwork. She was a small, pretty girl with shoulder-length, straight, dark hair. So, from what I can gather, at least with Stephanie, Terry, and Tina, they're all small girls with medium to long, darker hair and could be described as attractive. Now that I have somewhat of a profile to go off of, 
I can try to match up that profile and MO to any known serial killers. Or perhaps it matches a serial killer that is still at large. Or perhaps it's not a serial killer at all. If you knew Tina or have any tips or clues regarding her unsolved murder, please contact me at info at searchingforclosure.com or participate in our Facebook group. Just search Facebook for Searching for Closure, the Tina Davison Cold Case Podcast. Every time I post a new episode, I will also be posting a new blog entry with notes, pictures, news articles, or videos. You can find that at www.searchingforclosure.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and don't forget to subscribe. And please spread the word about Tina. Her case has remained unsolved for 45 years now and deserves closure. Until next time, thank you for listening.